Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Waterfront Church. Okay, Psalm 139 and Genesis 41. Have you ever gone on a quest to find something before? Okay, you ever gone on a quest to find something before? Now, just for the record, that word quest kind of gives you this Lord of the Rings-esque, you know, walking staff and going after something. We're not talking about like a quest like that. The quest for many of you who've moved here from another location, the quest I'm trying to bring up to you today is if you have a food that you love, okay, a food that you love from your home state, from your hometown, or some of you have this. Did your grandmother or grandfather ever just make something that was perfect? You know what I mean? And you've chased that taste. You've chased that feeling. So moving here to D.C., I have something that I am on a quest to find regularly, and that is, like many Texans, a good chicken fried steak. Guys, I've been looking for a good chicken fried steak in this city. This is usually when someone raises their hand and goes, oh, Ted's Bulletin has a wonderful chicken fried steak. Say that to a Texan, and here's what they do. Yeah, right? When you eat the one at Ted's Bulletin, Ted's is wonderful, just about everything else, but their chicken fried steak is like burned into a bowl. It's like a chicken fried bowl, you know what I mean? And then they use the package gravy on top, and it's just not the same, okay? It's just not the same. So all that to say, I've been on the lookout for a very, very good. So I want to tell you today what the markings are of a good chicken fried steak. First is it's round steak and not ground beef, okay? But it's a ground steak that you take a mallet and you pummel the heck out of it. Am I right, Shelby? Okay, you pummel the heck out of it. Of it, and then you season it, but the seasoning has to have just a little bit of cayenne pepper in it. Got to have a little bit of kick to it. Then you soak it in buttermilk, you soak it in flour, and then you deep fry that thing. It's not medium rare like another steak. I mean, you crisp up that bad boy, and then you don't do the package gravy, all right? You got to do real gravy, right? Real gravy, greasy stuff you can feel in the arteries. That's when you know it's a good chicken fried steak, all right? Now, there's some of you that would say, again, I've got something in my life, too, that I've been looking for and searching for. I try it out at different restaurants. I just hadn't been able to find it yet. Now, it's one thing when it's food. There are some of you that feel that same way about a relationship with God. And you're sitting there going, Lord, I'm trying. Just for the record, that doesn't just work for people the first time that they meet God. It also happens for those of us who've walked with God for some time, but go through stretches where you go, Lord, I need to see you for a big decision. I have to make it work. I need to see you for a big decision I have to make in my relationships. I, have a, I need to see you for a big decision I've got to make for something that's on the horizon in front of me. Lord, I need to see you. And yet it feels like you are so distant. No matter where you fall on that spectrum today, David, here's what it says. David says, Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Stop right there for just a minute. What happens in this passage is so powerful. In verses one through six, David starts off by saying, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You perceive my thoughts from afar. And then he says, Lord, you hem me in. The idea is like a garment that's sewed up all the way around us. And he says, Lord, if I turn to the right, you're there. If I turn to the left, you're there. To the front, to the back, there's nowhere I can go where I'm closer to you or further away. And then in verse seven, David comes back and says, says the real question is not how far away is God, but is there ever a point when God is not near to us? And look at what he says again in verse seven. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become as night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you. Look at verse 13. This is so powerful. He says, for you created me or created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What David says at the beginning of saying, God is so near, let me describe it to you. He then comes back and goes, actually, the answer to that question is, is there anywhere you can go where God is not? No, there is nowhere that we can go that is not under his dominion and his power. He says, if I go all the way up to the heavens, there is nothing so good that we could do that we overshoot God. He says, then if I make my bed down in the depths, if I do things that are so awful and wicked, could I go somewhere where God is not? No, God is power over the good and the evil. He then comes back and says, I can't even hide in the shadows. He says, Lord, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The picture there is there is no time before God in his power and dominion over your life, and there will be no time after your existence, no time after your life that God did not have power and dominion. Where can we go where he is not? Nowhere. God is all around us. And yet there are seasons where it feels like we can't see him. If you are in one of those seasons, I've got good news for you. Are you ready for this? Write this down. The existence of God is undeniable and the presence of God is unshakable. Let me say that again. The existence of God is undeniable and the presence of God is unshakable. If you have somehow, some way, made your way into the church service today, and you don't know God the same way that Christians do, I don't believe that you're here by an accident. And I want to explain to you how you are able to see God and his works around us. And then there are some of you in here who are at that point we talked about, a point of decision, where you desperately need to see what God's purpose and plan is for your life. If that's you, we're going to give you some answers today as well. Our big million-dollar question, are you ready, is this. How does God reveal himself to someone who doesn't see him? How does God reveal himself to someone who doesn't see him? We get a case study of that in Genesis chapter 42, or Genesis chapter 41. Flip over with me now, Genesis chapter 41, and we're going to continue our story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, uh, and today what is actually the story of Pharaoh. Now, just for the record, give you a little background. Don't forget that we've been going through the life of Joseph. Joseph starts off, has this amazing vision that the Lord is going to put him into a position of leadership and power. And yet, how does that vision start? By his brothers selling him into slavery. Remember, he goes off into slavery. He works in a guy named Potiphar's house, but then is accused of sexual assault. They take him away. There's not enough evidence to convict him. And so they just hold him in the house of the captain of the guard. He's in this federal prison. He's serving and trying to keep a good attitude, even in the midst of difficulty. All of a sudden, two other prisoners show up, a cupbearer and a baker. They each, at some point, after being under Joseph's care, have dreams. Joseph interprets those dreams, shares with them the truth, and then all of a sudden it ends up where uh, these two men, one of them ends up being hanged and Joseph calls that shot three days before it happens, and then the cupbearer ends up being restored to his position at Pharaoh's right hand, as his, at his side as an advisor. When that happens, we then have verse 23 there at the end of chapter 40 and it says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. You remember chapter 40 begins with sometime later and Joseph 
waiting for God to show up on his behalf, and it ends with basically sometime later there at the end, uh, and the cupbearer, who can be the one to bring Joseph up to Pharaoh, forgetting Joseph, and Joseph being trapped in limbo again. There have been several of you that have, called, that have uh, emailed and said, I really appreciate what you've had to say on this passage as far as patience goes because I'm in one of those seasons of sometime later. I've got good and bad news for you in the first verse of chapter 41. Are you ready? Look with me if you will. If you're one who's been navigating patience, look at Genesis 41 verse one. When two full years had passed, please circle, highlight, and underline when two full years had passed. It starts off sometime later in chapter 40. It ends with sometime later because the chief cupbearer forgets him. And then in chapter 41, it's not just two years or about two years, it's two full years that have passed. I want you to notice something. Joseph is on the fast track to where God desires for him to be. Listen to me when I say that to you. Joseph is on the fast track, but two full years later, two full years later in the moment can feel like God is not present or God is not doing anything on his behalf. And yet the Lord is powerfully enacting his plan. God is not slow to action. Look at what happens next. Two full years had passed. Pharaoh had a dream. Underline, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the, among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Verse five, he fell asleep again. Underline, he fell asleep again. And he had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were, or were growing on a single stalk. And after, uh, after them, seven other heads of grain spouted up and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads of grain. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. Have you ever had a bad or weird dream before? You wake up and you go, whoa, that was awful. And you go back to sleep and the second dream is weirder than the first. That's what happens to Pharaoh here. Super weird dream. He wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, man, that must have been some bad pizza I had last night. I just need to sleep it off. And then what happens? It's that same thing, seven and seven, right there again. It's a reminder that this is something bigger than him that's taking place. One of the struggles in our lives is when God shows up in a supernatural collision is to write it off as coincidence. But you know how much faith it takes to believe in a coincidence that's rolling snake eyes a billion times in a row rather than Almighty God acting and intervening on our behalf. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How does God reveal himself to someone who doesn't see him? Number one, he creates a supernatural collision. He creates a supernatural collision. In this passage, Pharaoh does not know Yahweh. And so what happens in this passage is he has a dream and the dream is unexplainable. He tries to sleep it off, but then the Lord sends a second dream right here at the same time. This, by the way, is not just about Joseph. It's a dream that has to do with famine in the land and taking care of not just the people of, of, of Egypt, but taking care of the people in the known world at this point by there being enough food. I mean, this is a global dream that Pharaoh has just had in this moment, but it has deep implications on Joseph as well. There are some of you in this room who will come to me and say, 
Zach, I have someone in my life, a neighbor, a friend, a relative, that I want so badly to know Jesus the same way that I do. And I always will tell you, let's get together and pray that God would send a supernatural collision so that they could have something happen in their life that they can't easily explain away. Something that's a reminder to them that things are going on beyond reason, Things are going on beyond their understanding of this world. It says in Scripture, no one comes to the Father unless what? The Spirit draweth him. There is a supernatural movement that has to take place for every movement of God in a person's salvation. That supernatural collision has to happen when it's something that we cannot explain away as coincidence without a fight. It's God's way of trying to get your attention. And it doesn't just work that way for the first time. There are some of you in this room who've walked with God for a really long time and something will happen and it's God's way of letting you know, pull out of the normal and look to the horizon because God is about to do something. Remember we talked about that holy restlessness that stirs within us? It's a supernatural collision that reminds us God is at work and he's at work very close to us. We stop, we look to the horizon, we keep our head on a swivel, as my football coach used to say, keep your head on a swivel because God is about to do something. You know why you keep your head on a swivel in defense? Because that left tackle is about to come and knock you in the ear hole, that's right. Okay, you gotta keep your head on a swivel so that you don't end up getting hit by something and the Lord wants us uh, to be open and available. If you're taking notes, write this down. Supernatural collisions are scheduled by God and not by us. Supernatural collisions are scheduled by God in his timing and not by us. Some of you have heard this story before, but it fits so well right here. So one of our original Waterfront Church board members is a man named David Godfrey. David Godfrey and I met in fairly supernatural circumstances. David uh, lived here uh, in the 1980s, and uh, David, uh, David served in D.C. for a very, very long time. He's a very godly man. Um, and I'll never forget, um, when we worked, uh, before we came here to start the church in D.C., I worked at a church in Texas called Victory Life Baptist Church. And the pastor there was trying to woo me into taking the job. And I'll never forget, he announced from the pulpit the day that before we took the job, he announced there's a young man here with a heart for Washington, D.C., and he said, we just want to pray for him, and maybe he'll come on staff and serve with us for a time. That's all he says. And again, he was trying to work me. There's about 1,000 people in the audience that day. He's just trying to work me into taking the job. Well, at the end of the service, another man comes up, David Godfrey, and says to the pastor, who's the young man with the heart for D.C.? He said, it's my first Sunday at this church as well. He said, we've been living in Mount Vernon for several years, he said, for several decades, but he said, I have a house, a ranch, that's two miles from where the church was in Lubbock, and he had grown up in Spur, Texas originally. He said, who's this young man? Well, sure enough, I go to meet David, and when I do, Autumn and I put together this brochure of, of, uh, of this idea of planting the church in D.C., and so we go to him, and I sit with him, and I hand him the publication, and then for about an hour, I talk to him and tell, us, tell him our vision of what's going to happen in D.C., and guys, I can talk. I mean, it's just the way it works, okay? <laughs> I'll never forget, David has a little white mustache, and David squints his eyes like this as he's listening to you. And he's a rancher, squinting his eyes like this. So as we're going through, I talk for about an hour straight, tell him the crazy vision, tell him how we've been sending mission teams up here for years, tell him about how we've fallen in love with Southeast D.C. 
And then after about an hour of me talking, I said, what do you think, sir? At that point, hoping he'll invest. And David looks at me and he goes, let me tell you about a little nation called Slovakia. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I've been talking for an hour about D.C. He goes, we'll get to that. He goes, let me tell you about Slovakia. And then my response was, Czechoslovakia? That's what I said, Czechoslovakia? He goes, no, no, they're two countries. And immediately I was like, geography has failed me. (laughs) He said, they divided into two countries. He said, the Lord is at work in Slovakia. He said, you do well with Slovakia. He said, we'll have a conversation about Washington. Now, here's what's interesting. Someone typically says something like that to me. I don't give it a whole lot of credence. There's a lot of people who pitch pastors a lot of ideas. But we had had a supernatural collision that brought us together. Same day, first day. He lived in D.C. We'd been announced just that way. And what was nuts, many of you in this room have gone on one of our mission trips to Slovakia that we've done. This year will be my 11th year either going on or facilitating a trip to Slovakia. We did three trips last year that we took people to Slovakia where you guys built roofs and uh, you put windows on. We've seen dozens and dozens of people come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior over these years in these villages. We don't just help one village anymore. We help a half dozen villages in in Slovakia. It's been amazing to watch the way that the Lord has worked. But that that moment, that supernatural collision was a reminder to me. This could not have been coincidence. I'm supposed to be connected to this person. There is something that God wants to do. And now the goal with a supernatural collision is not to give you a checklist of what to do necessarily. It's meant to be like a nudge in the right direction. When you sit there and you go, I don't know. I know that the Lord is moving in this thing. I know that he's been speaking through this thing. I know that he's been speaking in this place to my life. It's just a nudge in the right direction so that you can follow him just a little bit further down the path. Just for the record, some of you might say, ah, well, that's great for Pharaoh, that's great for you, Zach, but is that really the way that the Lord does it for everybody? Yes, and I'd like to prove it to you. Flip over to Luke chapter 5. This could very easily be called the Simon Peter principle. What we have right here in Luke chapter five, Peter over and over and over again in his life has a supernatural collision with almighty God and then he has to make a decision on what he's gonna do afterwards. Look at what happens in Luke five verse four. It says, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners to come in from the other boat to help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's the supernatural collision that's happened. Could they have, by coincidence, dropped their nets and caught everything? Yes, they could have. But man, it's a pretty steep faith to believe that that deal came up snake eyes a billion times in a row. This is a moment that could be explained away through coincidence, but it takes a lot of faith to believe that it was just a coincidence. And Peter knows that. Why? Because he had fished all night and caught nothing. Look at what happens next. It says, when Peter saw him, saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, underline fell at his knees, and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man, for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken in. And they were, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. But then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats to shore, left everything, and followed after him. 
Notice it doesn't say that Peter fell at Jesus' feet. Falling at the feet is a sign of submission. Falling at the knees is Peter doing this. He has fallen down, and with his mouth he's saying, go away. But with his body he's saying, don't leave me. That's the struggle with a supernatural collision. A supernatural collision is Peter going, I want you to go away because my life was simpler before I met you, but now I am changed. Now I am different. It'd be easier if you just went away, but don't stink and go away. Stay near to me. And Jesus looks at him and goes, follow me. Leave this. You think the fish are a big deal? Follow me and I'll teach you how to change the world. I'll teach you how to change the hearts of men. It wasn't just this point. When Jesus walks on the water, he has just told the disciples, greater things than I have done, you will do. And when Peter sees Jesus walking on those waves in the midst of the storm, all of a sudden Peter cries out, let me walk to you. If it's you, let me walk to you. Again, this collision of faith, this Holy Spirit moment where Peter cries out, I will have faith, I will step forward. There were other times where the collision was not as good. When Jesus says to him, Simon, you'll betray me three times before the rooster crows this day. Simon says, there's no way. There's no way. And yet when it happens, he couldn't even sin without Jesus knowing about it. And then you come to John 21. In John 21, Peter has felt like a failure He's tried to go back to fishing. And then what happens in John 21, the final miracle that we see Jesus perform before he ascends to heaven, he looks at Peter and he performs the same miracle from Luke chapter five, another miraculous catch of fish to remind Peter, the same way I spoke to you the first time is the same way that I speak to you all the way into the future as well. For a believer in Jesus Christ or one that's just starting out, the supernatural moments, those supernatural collisions, it's not where you say, God, if you're real, move that microphone, okay? God, if you're real, have the guitar play a G right now, right? That's how some of you do. Miracles happen on God's time, and those supernatural collisions are the ones where you go, this could be coincidence, but I believe that the Lord is up to something. When those moments happen, lift your eyes to the horizon and watch at what the Lord is doing. He's given you a picture of who he is and what he's doing. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. Has something happened that spiritually demands your attention? Has something happened that spiritually demands your attention? Now flip back over to Genesis 41, and let's look at what takes place in verse 8. Pharaoh has these crazy dreams. Look at what happens next. He's had a supernatural collision. Verse 8, it says, In the morning, his mind was troubled. Underline his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and the wise men. Underline the magicians and the wise men. The magicians, by the way, during this time period would be like the sorcerers or the people of science that can perform all these different uh, chemical compound combinations, right? Okay, all the magicians and the wise men. These are the people of reason in Egypt. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, look at this, but no one could interpret them for him. Stop right there for just a minute. What Pharaoh has lost is the most precious commodity I've found in D.C. Pharaoh has lost peace. 
He has lost the ability to truly make a decision and have peace behind it. Peace is so valuable in this city to be able to get a good night's rest knowing you did everything you could to fulfill the task that was put in front of you. But our God is the author of peace. In fact, Jesus, it says in scripture, is the prince of peace. It is under our God's control and a gift that he gives to us. If you're taking notes, how does God reveal himself to someone who doesn't see him? Number one, he creates a supernatural collision. And number two, he lovingly removes peace. He lovingly removes peace. I chose that word lovingly very carefully. Peace is a gift from Almighty God. And if you don't have it, then God is screaming at you, trying to get your attention for one of two reasons. And I want to share those with you real quick. Write this down. You ready? The absence of peace can be a consequence of sin or a prompting to urgency to urgently seek the truth. Let me say that again. The absence of peace can be a consequence of sin or a prompting to urgently seek the truth. Peace goes away when we fall into sin. Now, just for the record, there's an antibiotic for that. It says in Scripture, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If sin is what is causing your lack of peace, guess what? All you got to do is go before God, repent and confess, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it doesn't matter what you've done, past, present, or future, his shed blood will cover your sin and provide peace to your body. If it's sin, confess it and be free. But for some of you, it's not sin-related. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you still feel that holy restlessness. That withholding of peace is not God's anger upon you. It's the Lord stirring your heart to say, look to the horizon. I want you sharp. I want you ready because something is about to happen. You ever driven a car before that lost its power steering? You had that happen before? Some of you take way better care of your cars, and you probably will never have that problem, all right? But older cars struggle a little bit with that sometimes. When you lose the power steering, power steering is awesome. I mean, you're just driving along, leisurely drive. But dude, that power steering goes out, and all of a sudden, I mean, you look like a sailor in the storm, you know what I mean? Trying to turn that wheel just to get into the next lane. I mean, it's brutal, right? It's heavy, it's tough. You're trying to turn everything on your own. That's the picture of life without peace. You can still travel. You can still go through life, but it's a whole lot harder. And man, every move you make is something that you notice and you feel as you go through those, as you go through the day and you go through the struggle. That's the picture. When God removes peace, it causes us to realize there is something that is off or there is something that is changing around us. So it begs our question here, is an area of your life without peace? Is an area of your life without peace? If so... God may be trying to tell you something. He may be trying to get you again out of that normal flow of power steering to realize something's going on and I need to realize he's at work here in a very powerful way. Let's look at our final words and we'll close today, final verses and we'll close today. Look at verses nine through 13. It says, then <laughs> the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. I love verse nine. Y'all remember the story? He forgot Joseph. And all of a sudden, when Pharaoh has this crazy dream and doesn't have anybody around to interpret it, the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you about somebody. 
In fact, they could probably solve your problem if he had been here in the house today. Now, here's what's interesting. Don't view the cupbearer as a villain in this circumstance. What the cupbearer is, is the cupbearer is a witness to what God has done. And at the right time, God calls for it, and he is able to stand up and speak, not just on Joseph's behalf, but on God's behalf. If you're taking note, by the way, let's look at the next part. Look at what happens in verse 10. He says, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. Verse 13, and things turned out exactly, underline exactly, as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Stop right there for just a minute. When the cupbearer remembers Joseph, he then says to Pharaoh, hey man, I met this guy while I was in prison. You remember when you got upset with me and the baker? He says, I met this guy in prison. He interpreted my dream and the baker's, and he was spot on. Now here's what's interesting. The magicians and the wise men have the education, they've got the power and position, but the person who spoke the truth with the power of Yahweh God behind it was the simple cupbearer who had served time in prison. It's a powerful picture of the way God speaks to our hearts. God doesn't speak to you through the person who's got the position, necessarily. He doesn't speak to you through the person who's got the most experience, necessarily. Sometimes God can speak to you through the least likely of people but when the spirit stirs within you that you need to listen, truth is truth. Receive it. We call that person an evangelist. An evangelist is someone who brings good news, who speaks on behalf of Almighty God and shares with you the truth. If you're taking notes, our last point today, how does God reveal himself to those who don't see him? Number one, he creates a supernatural collision. Number two, he lovingly removes that peace. And number three, he calls for an evangelist. He calls for an evangelist, someone to share their story who speaks with authority. By the way, a little side note here, evangelists should be humble, personal, and bold in sharing their testimonies. I promised you guys I would tell you the good stories and the ugly stories of my life. Even pastors have moments when we get trapped in sin. And the enemy was after me pretty heavily before I went into ministry. I've told you guys before, it was about 18 months when I was in college and I made some really bad decisions. I quit going to church and what that meant was I started taking double shifts on Sunday at Red Lobster. That was one of my ways to justify to my parents. I would say I had to work, and that was the reason that uh, I didn't go to church, but really I was scheduling those shifts um, so that I could skip and not go. And then something happened in the state of Oklahoma. Um, it was either my freshman or sophomore year. Something happened that caused me a whole lot of trouble. They legalized blackjack on the Indian reservations in the state of Oklahoma. And so... I started to go. I got paid at the end of the night in cash, and I'd go with $20, and I'd go play hands of blackjack with friends, and we'd just mess around. They also made the age 18 instead of 21, and so we'd just go to the reservations, and we'd play blackjack. For any of you who navigate addiction, it wasn't about the prospect of winning money. What was so awful about my addiction is that I couldn't control anything else in my life at that stretch, but I could control losing my money. That's a really dumb addiction to have. 
I could control losing my money. And then, right before God gave me the vision for Waterfront, I had broken up with my girlfriend. We'd been dating for three and a half years. She and I broke up, and I went on a bender just right after. And instead of taking $20, I took $40. And one particular day, I went first thing in the morning. You gambling in the morning, you really got problems. I go first thing in the morning, I took the $40, and in the first five minutes, it was gone. I needed to prolong the feeling, and all of a sudden, I was considering crossing a line. I went to the ATM machine, and I took out my rent money that I'd been saving that month. It was $350 what I had to pay in rent. And I had $350 that I pulled out in my rent money, and I start to walk back to the table. When I get there, there was a blackjack dealer, and I can still picture him in my mind. It's bizarre. You ever meet somebody that just is burned in your memory forever? I can still picture this man. He's tall, skinny, had a little dark goatee, long, black hair, parted down the middle. And I remember, I walked to the table, and I said, I'm the big spender today, and I laid my money out on the table. At that point man had his hands on the table and he looks up at the camera. He looks back down at me and he says, go home. I won't say it again. Place your bets. Place your bets. It wasn't the blackjack dealer speaking to me. That was the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart that that is not who I was and that I did not need to cross that line. He was the evangelist. You know what I did? I snatched that money off the table, and I ran to my car, and I wept. I couldn't believe that I had gotten myself into that circumstance. I couldn't believe that I had let a breakup push me to the point that I was about to throw my rent money away just so I could have a few moments of feeling like a big shot. I quit gambling. I've gambled maybe two times since that day, and it felt deeply, deeply wrong to me both times because it just reminded me of that man, his face, and the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Is there someone in your life who has been your cupbearer, listen, who has been your blackjack dealer, that the Spirit of God is speaking truth to you through them so that you don't cross a line and start to become somebody that you are not supposed to be. Somebody who would be lesser in the hands of Almighty God. He's trying to protect you. He's trying to empower you. It begs our final question today. Is God trying to get your attention? Whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, you have one response, and guess what it is? Yes, Yes, God, I hear you. God, I see you. All that time I had felt like God was so distant and then all of a sudden there he was in front of me and a long-haired man sitting at the blackjack table. Then all of a sudden there he was as I wept in the car with his arms around me, protecting me and raising me up so that I didn't throw my life away. There he was in the vision for Waterfront Church and the way that he took care of me again. 
God is trying to get our attention to remind us he didn't go anywhere. He's right there with us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. Nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different from the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anybody here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need a supernatural collision for me or for someone that I love. I need the Lord to move and to act on my behalf. And you're not the one saying, Lord, strum that guitar if it's, if it's time, if it's really you. Lord, make the microphone move if that's really you. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, in his timing, would you pray for me that God would move in my life, that there would be a supernatural collision for me or for someone that I love? If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. But begin to watch things that you might, if you really tried, be able to write it off as coincidence. Watch for those moments and then choose the path of faith instead of trying to rationalize it out. I'm going to pray for you, but if that's you, just say this simple prayer. God, open my eyes to see you at work. Or God, open their eyes that they might see you at work. Second, Maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I have no peace right now. Maybe it's because of sin that you've got trapped in, or maybe it's because the Lord is really trying to keep you salty because something is about to happen, because change is on the horizon. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with peace. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. And so many of you, y'all can put your hands down. It really is the most precious commodity in this city. If that was you and you're struggling with sin, remember our old saying, if you mess up, confess up, get up and move on. Confession is the antibiotic. Confess your sin, give it to God, and then trust the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sin. And then, if it's a holy urgency stirring within you, tell God, Lord, provide peace when the time is right, but I will keep my eye to the horizon. Lord, bring peace when the time is right, but I will keep my eye to the horizon. I will watch for you. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, there's been a blackjack dealer in my life. There's been someone, maybe not with power or position, maybe not with a title or even great intelligence, someone that the Lord has placed in your path, in your life, who has spoken the truth to you, and it's time you receive it. Not that you beat up the giver of the truth or the messenger anymore, but you receive it for what it was, the Holy Spirit speaking directly to you. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. There's an evangelist in my life, and I need to listen to the truth they spoke. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. That took guts. I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer again is very simple. God, help me to say yes. 
God, help me to say yes and receive the truth. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing a supernatural collision today or are desiring a supernatural collision. I pray that you would help them to look across the horizon for you, and Lord, that you would move on their behalf. Lord, for those seeking peace today, I pray that they would go to you, the author, the perfecter, Lord, the prince of peace, that they would seek it from the source. Lord, if there's something they're supposed to take, if they need to confess, I pray you would help them to confess. If there's something they need to wait for, give them courage to wait. And then, Lord, if the truth has been spoken to them, no matter who it's come from, I pray you would give them the courage to receive it. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.